We are in the gospel according to Job. There is gospel in Job. There is good news in the book of Job, even as horrific as his experience was. There is good news there. One key sign of the good news in Job is that it doesn't end on bad news. Job doesn't end in destruction and despair. It ends in restoration and fullness and health. Uh, Suffering is not the destiny of God's people. Salvation and restoration, eternal life, eternal delight is. But Job reminds us that while we can't see or understand, there is purpose and meaning in our suffering. There is glory in suffering. There's glory to God and there's our own glory in suffering. God is intimately involved in our suffering. God does not abandon us even though it feels like he has. And so we need to see this good news. But we see, we have seen in Job 1, which is the test one, that Job, while he was blameless and while he was upright and wealthy, a big family man who feared God and shunned evil, Satan says to God, does Job fear God for nothing? And that was, that was Satan's belief that Job only worshipped God, only worshipped him because he gave him things. He gave him things, things for worship, prosperity for piety. And Satan says, lower that hedge of protection around Job and he will curse you to your face. And so God gave Satan permission to have at it with Job. Only do not touch him. Don't touch his body. And in three fell swoops, he loses his wealth, his livestock, his servants, and his ten children, his seven, do- seven sons and three daughters. And what was Job's response? He, tear- he tears his robe, he falls to the ground, and he worships naked. I came from my mother's womb naked. Shall I return? The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed praise be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin. And then we see Job 2, the second test. Satan comes back. God boasts about Job. There's no one like him. He still holds his integrity, even though Satan incited God against him to ruin him without reason. And Satan answers, skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand, touch his bone and flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And so the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. And Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. And so here we find the picture of Job sitting on an ash heap. He's totally desolate. He's scraping his sores with broken pottery. His wife experiencing the unspeakable losses. Says, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job says, shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? And in all this, Job still did not sin with his lips. And then we find at the end of chapter 2, it says Job's three friends hear about what happened, and they went to see Job. And it says that they sat in silence. And, and it's good to know when to sit in silence. But they sat in silence for seven days. Some people say that maybe they came with their lawn chairs while Job was on the ash heap. George Fuller, former president of Westminster Seminary, said Job grew around 
He grew up around a theology with a view of God that a blameless man does not suffer. A man without sin prospers. The less sin you have, the less problems you have. That was the theology of the day. Job knew that he was not a perfect man. He knew that he would suffer some. That was the given. But to suffer much, to suffer this much, that was too much. Losing not only his home and his wealth, but also his children, that was beyond his own comprehension. And now his health. Job's basic problem was not about the loss of material things, he could handle that, but his health and his children. Job's basic problem was spiritual. His illness, the loathsome boils, was like a direct verdict from heaven, a negative verdict from heaven, almost where God would say, you have dishonored me, Job, suffer some more. But Job didn't understand, he couldn't handle that, and it became clear that Job could not turn to his friends for any help. He identifies his friends later as miserable comforters. They had all the answers. They had their right or their tight theology. They knew what Job's problem was. It was clear. He was a rotten sinner. He had betrayed and dishonored God. Job was guilty. The mystery now was, what was that crime that Job committed their silence was a condemning silence. What maybe was initial grief turned to a shaming stare. So Job lost his wealth, he lost his family, his health, and now he not only lost the comfort of friends, Job was now surrounded by their silent condemnation and disrespect. Not only for a few hours, but for seven days Shaming, solens, deadening, suffocating. C.S. Lewis wrote in A Grief Observed concerning the loss and the death of his beloved wife, Joy Davidman. He says, no one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. I am not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. The same fluttering in the stomach, the same relentlessness, the yawning. I keep swallowing. At other times, it feels like being mildly drunk, or I've been experienced a concussion. There is a sort of invisible blanket between the world and me. I find it hard to take, it, take in what someone says, or perhaps hard to, to want to take it in. It is so uninteresting. Yet I want the others to be about me. I dread the moments when the house is empty. If only they would talk to one another and not to me. Job's friends, or supposed friends, were not talking at all. They just remained silent, and clearly in their hearts, he knew what they were thinking. Well, Job could not stand it any longer, and we find in chapter 3, he opens his mouth, and he curses the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived, let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, 
Let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up the Leviathan. Let the stars of the dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but, who, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breast that I would, should nurse? For then I should have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept, then I would have been at rest, with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not a hidden, stillborn child as infants who never see the light? There the, wick, the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease want together. They, they hear not the voice of their taskmaster. The small and the great are there. The slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures? who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hid from God, whom God has hedged in? For my sign comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. The word of the Lord. Well, we've come to the third chapter of Job. We see a man beginning to cave in. Caving in under the excruciating trials of suffering. Here we see Job, the man of faith, on the edge of losing it. One of the great things I appreciate, appreciate about the Bible is the stark reality of people in their suffering. There is nothing sugar-coated or plastic about Job's struggle. There's no cover-up. God drops the curtain and lets us see what faith looks like on the edge so that through endurance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope to hold on. And so here we see God shows us the struggle of faith on the edge. God will take us to the edge. He says in verse 24, My sign comes instead of my bread. My groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. Many times people know that the anxieties and the worries that they have will never actually transpire, you know. But for Job, it did. God will take us to the very limits of our abilities to endure. 1 Corinthians 10 uh, Paul says that God will not let us be tempted beyond uh, that which we can bear. He won't give us more than we can handle, but God will give us what we can handle. He will take us to the edge. He will, pun he will push your limits. And it says that after this, Job cursed the day of his birth. This man of faith who after, law, after losing his wealth, his business, his employees, and his children, he falls to the ground and he worships God. 
This man whose body had been plagued by an incurable disease and whose wife tells him to curse God and says, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? This man says, shall we not accept good from God and not trouble? He's still a man of faith, but now this man of faith has now come to the end of his faith. He comes to the end of his rope, and we no longer find a man worshiping God We no longer find a man accepting trouble from God. What we find is a man who wishes he were dead. He wishes he he was never born. He ends this chapter by revealing his state. What I feared has come upon me. I have no peace, no quietness. The worst thing that he could ever have imagined has come upon him, and he is constantly in torment. This is Job's state. The possibility that somehow things would improve as we know they did never entered his mind. From his perspective, there was nothing, there was nothing left to live for. God took Job to the edge. And God will take his most precious and beloved children to the edge of their faith as well. And so what we see here is that God permits his children to suffer God permits his children to suffer intensely, and God permits his children to suffer long. God will take his children to the edge. You know, we get surprised by suffering. We experience, uh, in the scriptures, we are taught by 1 Peter, dear friends, do not be surprised by the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening, but we are always getting surprised by suffering. James 1 says, Consider pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. But it's hard for us to have joy in our trials. Hebrews 12 says, Endure hardship as discipline. God's treating you as son, but we often don't look at it like loving discipline. When Paul was called by Christ to be his apostle, he said, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. God does bless us with health and wealth, but he also blesses us with hardship that we might be transformed in the character of his son. And it doesn't happen without the cross. We don't know exactly what Job's illness was, what that affliction was, that physical affliction of painful sores. Some think it was elephantitis, but his whole body is breaking down. In chapter 7, He expresses his misery. When I lie down, I think, how long before I get up? The night drags on and I toss till dawn. My body is clothed with worms and scabs. My skin is broken and festering. And so Job is sitting on this ash heap in the rubbish in this dump outside the city, scraping his body with broken pottery in order to get some relief. He feels broken. He feels like a piece of discarded garbage. Job could not take, he could not make sense out of this state of oppression. And the more he thought about it, the more confused he was. God didn't permit Job to suffer a little. He permitted him to suffer intensely and to suffer long without any apparent relief and no answers. Reynolds Price uh, was a professor of English at Duke University in the 1980s. And uh, he was hit with spinal cancer that left him paralyzed. Uh, He said early on that he was able to joke about the scalding radiation treatment by saying he was going every day to Hiroshima for lunch. He wrote of his experience and struggle with 
uh, with faith to a former medical student who was hit with colon and liver cancer who realized his life was coming quickly to an end. And uh, the student wanted to know whether God existed or not, and did he care? And so he wrote letters to his student, and his, his letters were published in a book entitled Letter to a Man in the Fire. Uh, he shared with his, this desperate man that his means of surviving his ordeal rested in his belief that God uh, was there. He said he remembered one rare moment when he sensed Jesus washing his cancer wound, and then weeks later, as his legs were plainly failing, he was alone in the dark, in his dark bed, and he asked how much more pain must he suffer, and he sensed a voice answer, more. But at this time, Job wasn't given any answers. He was left with confusing silence. Nothing made sense. The only thing that did make sense was death. Have you ever been so miserable that you wished you were dead? Uh, many have maybe seen It's a Wonderful Life, where George Bagley, Bailey, uh, played by James Stewart, had given up hope in the midst of hard times, and he wished as he stood looking over the bridge, thinking it ready to fall in, he says, I wish I were never born. I think there are probably many in this place and that maybe have experienced that feeling at times. Newsweek said that one in four teenagers have thought about suicide. I remember feeling confused and unable to relate to some of those men who would take their own lives in a violent way, particularly with a gun to your head. But then I experienced such an overwhelming feeling of despair and discouragement where I could imagine, in a similar context, taking a gun and blowing my brains out in order to stop the pain. But by God's grace, I resisted such notions. I have had two friends, however, Two professed believers who have taken their lives in similar feats of desperation. One jumped off the 41st Street Bridge. Years later, another brought, jumped off the 28th Street Bridge over Jones Falls. It's one thing to come to the edge. It's another thing to jump off the edge. And so Job comes to the edge, and he curses the day of his birth. Job wishes he was never born. Job comes to the edge, and God has taken Job to the edge. What does faith look like on the edge? It looks a lot like Job. It is not pretty, but it is real. And Job teaches us to cry out on the edge. Job teaches us that God will hear our cries on the edge. Why did I not die at birth, come out of the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me? Why was I not a hidden, stillborn child as infants who never see the light. Job teaches us what to do with our grief and anguish. Job teaches us what faith, weak and fragile as it is, looks like. It looks like pouring out one's heart in desperation and abandonment to God. You know, God has inscripturated these gut-wrenching words of Job to let us know that he wants your despair. He wants my despair. He wants our discouragements. He wants our honest struggle. Job is now having a hard time accepting trouble from God. Job is having a hard time worshiping God. Job is confused and perplexed. He goes from cursing to questioning. 
he has this rhetorical why. Why did I not perish uh, at birth? Uh, why were there knees to receive me? Why was I not hidden in the ground like a stillborn child? Why is light given to those in misery? Why, why, why? You can hear the anguish of his heart. Sighing comes to me instead of food. My groans pour out like water. I have no rest. Life really stinks, God. Job is dreadfully earnest and transparently honest. He tells God exactly how he feels and just how he thinks. And you know what? There are no better prayers than that. C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse the deaf world. There's a pastor, uh, Ben Patterson, said that God speaks to us in our pain. Uh, when he speaks to us in our pain, it is to arouse us to wrestle with the living God. Uh, he had a son that was diagnosed with Tourette's syndrome, which is some a kind of neuro, uh, neural dysfunction where a person is unable to control their, uh, their various aspects of their body, blinking of the eyes, facial and body tics, contortions, jerks, ritual movements, random vocalizations, barking sounds, and other such uncontrollable behavior. Uh, Patterson said he was angry, and he wrestled with God, asking him what he was doing. Why did he allow this to happen to his son? He says, God doesn't mind our anger. He relishes it if it drives us to him instead of away from him. Better an outburst than a theologically correct or spiritually pallid rationale and a, and a dangling conversation. You can speak your mind to God and not be afraid and he will blow, that he will blow things out of proportion. Uh, he talked uh, about how easy it is to domesticate God. Uh, with mindless, heartless prayers. And he mentioned about uh, Franklin Roosevelt. He said Franklin Roosevelt, uh, President Roosevelt, was weary of mindless small talk at White House receptions, uh, wondering if anyone was engaging in or engaging any real conversation. He conducted a, an experiment at the White House gathering. And as he shook a hand and flashed his big smile, he would say, I murdered my grandmother this morning. And with one exception, the people would smile back and say something like, you're doing a great job. How lovely. The exception was a, was a foreign diplomat who responded quietly, I'm sure she had it coming to her. If we are not shocked from time to time by some of the things that God says and does, we have not been listening. God wants us to be engaged. Uh, P.T. Forth said concerning prayer that God loves that holy war. Cast yourself into his arms, not to be caressed, but to wrestle with him. He may be too many for you and lift you from your feet, but it will be to lift you from earth and set you in the heavenly places which are theirs who fight the good fight and lay hold of God as their eternal life. Now, C.S. Lewis uh, was able to articulate exactly how he was feeling during his deep loss uh, in, in losing his wife. Uh, 
and the sense of silence and distance that God, where God was. He says, meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When, you're, when you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of a bolting, double bolting on the inside. After that silence, you may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It, may, it, it might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once, and that seeming was so as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity? and so very absent at help in time of trouble. That was his experience, and that's what many people experience in the midst of great loss and, and grief, where we wonder, where is God in this, in my life at this time? One of the things I am very grateful for, besides having Job 3, because that is the real experience of many in those times of deep losses, is Psalm 88. I'm glad that there's only one Psalm 88, by the way. But, you know, most of the Psalms may, may open with laments, but they end with a sense of hope and God's salvation and redemption. But Psalm 88 is the unique Psalm. It doesn't end with any hope. It ends with despair. It ends, he says, he says, you have taken my companions and loved ones from me. The darkness is my closest friend. It's a real downer. You talk about blues, it just is a sustained blue. But it's important to realize that this is divine revelation, that God gives us these experiences of his revelation so that we would know that he understands exactly how his people feel in their losses. And so I'm glad for that. But we also find the call in such times like Psalm 52, 22 of what to do, which says, cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. Which to cast means it's like the fisherman who throws the net. It's flinging. It's hurling. There's no control about it. You just do it. You just throw it out. Uh, you shed it. You hurl it. You fling it. You release it. And God wants us to release our burdens to him. And so he invites us to come to him. Here's an example of such from Jeremiah 20. Oh, Lord, you have deceived me, I was, and I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day long. Everyone mocks me. Cursed be the day on which I was born, the day when my mother bore me. Let it not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father. A son is born to you, making him very glad. Does that sound familiar? It sounds like Job. This is Jeremiah. And you see, this is not just Jeremiah, and it's not just Job, but this is you and me. It's God's people throughout the generations that we experience similar times of loss and wonderment. What is God doing Job 3 is the beating of a heavy pulse and an aching head. That is the issue here. It is the rising of a human soul in torture. 
Uh, someone said, we need to study not just the Greek and the Hebrew of Job, but we need to study the grief of Job. But finally, we not only need to know that God will take us to the edge and to know that the encouragement of honest, struggling prayer and, and calling out to God, crying out to God in our, when we're at the edge, but we need to know the grace of God who keeps us from going over the edge. He says, why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? He captured this. Job is still, still acknowledging that God has hedged him in. We need to hold on to this God. Even in, in, in the despair of wishing he were, he were dead, Job still held on to God in faith. Job cursed his birth, but he did not curse his God. He wished that God did not care about the day of his birth, but he acknowledges that God did care about the day of his birth. In Job 23, he still acknowledged that God was in control, that he was hedged in. Satan acknowledged that God had hedged Job in for blessing. Now Job acknowledges that God has hedged him in for misery. The constancy here is that God rules. God is sovereign. He is, he is the sovereign king. You see, even though Job has a weak faith, he still is holding on. He has been taken to the edge, but Job hasn't gone over the edge. Job wishes he were dead, but he would not take his own life. So Job is still practicing a vital faith, even though it is a weak faith. And so we find this picture of a man on the edge, but a man who is still practicing faith. But Job does make some errors in his thinking. You know, we're told in James 5, consider Job, consider the patience of Job. Well, what we see here in Job 3 and what we find in other portions of Job is the impatience of Job. Uh, what we see is that Job felt that circumstances were more important than life itself. Job felt like there was no reason for him to live, that God had taken away everything of meaning. But as we're reminded by Jesus and the meeting with the disciples, when they came back after uh, they had cast out demons and did all these things, and they were celebrating all the works that they had done and all the things they achieved, he says, he says do not rejoice in these, these things, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Job's name was written. He still had his God, even though his God was distant. But Job felt that God was becoming a stranger. Job felt that God was far from him. But we know in the rest of the scriptures is that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That the God that was there in the blessing is the same God that is there when the blessings are not there. That God is the same yesterday, today. But we must be careful not to be too hard on Job. It's understandable why he would go to such a far extreme in his thinking and his feelings. And God lets us know that these are realities that, that are part of the portion of his beloved children. But we also finally see 
that Job gives us an encouragement of a faith beyond what he can see, but we have a faith that looks back to something that has established for us the, the, the God of all grace who has come to us and who has assured us that he hasn't left us, he hasn't forsaken us, that he will not abandon us. And we find from uh, Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, Job didn't have what we have. Job had an had a intuitive sense that he had a redeemer and that it's, uh, he would stand upon the earth and that he would see this Redeemer in his own flesh. But he didn't have the kind of concrete historical reality of that's transpired, which is that we do can see our Redeemer. You know, but we still struggle believing that. We still struggle believing that Jesus came and that he died. And so that's why he gives us this meal as a concrete reminder. I'd like to ask the officers to come forward. So Jesus knows that we struggle believing that we have such a God who is with us that we have a God who, since he did not spare his only beloved son, that he will promise us all things. This meal is a meal that reinforces to us that we have the eternal love of God, that we have the relentless love of the Father, that Jesus Christ died for us and for our sins, and that he will take us home, that he will carry us home. And we can be assured of that. Who is this table for? It's for anyone who comes in repentance to Christ, who confesses their sins, who says, I need you as my Savior. Uh, if you've done that and you're seeking repentance in his church, he welcomes you to this table. If you haven't, I'd like to ask you to let this pass, to pray that God would reveal himself to you, that you could come to this table as a beloved son and daughter. We would love to walk with you through that step. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you give us uh, this concrete meal as a real expression of your eternal love. Lord, that Jesus, you came as a, in, in the f human flesh to remind us and to show us of the eternal love of the Father for us. Lord, help us to live in that uh, as we partake of this meal. Help us to, to let that sink deep into our hearts. And Lord, we commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, after giving thanks, he took the bread. He said, this is my body broken for you. Eat of this in remembrance of me.